These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the father, for the father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of the world is coming and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the father, I do exactly as the father commanded me. Get up. Let us go from here. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mighty and awesome word. Even in this text, we are reminded of the vital role of the person of the Holy Spirit. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that during this time you would remind us and teach us the things that Jesus has said. We pray all this in his name. Amen. What might you wish to leave your loved ones when you meet with death? What farewell gifts do you want to give and who would you give them to? Usually instructions regarding those sorts of matters are included in one's last will and testament. The thing that's defined as a legal document that communicates a person's final wishes as pertaining to possessions and dependents. A last will and testament outlines what is to be done with possessions, whether they are being left to another person or group or donated to a charity, and what will happen to other things for which that person was responsible, such as custody of dependents and investments and all of the rest. It's not uncommon for people to also include in their last will and testament words of remembrance and comfort and hope. Not only the thought of provision, but the thought of providing comfort and hope for those who are left behind. Well, we're here in the midst of Jesus's farewell discourse. It's a multiple chapter unit in John's gospel as we're working through a harmony of the gospels, which records the words that Jesus spoke on the, the night in which he would be betrayed and arrested. We're a mere few hours away from Jesus' crucifixion and his death. And here at the end of John 14, Jesus continues to show just such marvelous love and compassion toward his disciples. He's preparing them for the events that are about to proceed. He's offering them something that might come as close as possible to a last will and testament in these words. Jesus didn't have land holdings per se. He didn't have controlling interest in businesses or Swiss bank accounts or designer clothes or shoes. He didn't have fancy chariots. He didn't have streamlined boats. He didn't have thoroughbred horses. Jesus didn't have possessions of that sort to distribute to his disciples. Isn't it fascinating to think that he who owns the cattle on the thousand hills in his earthly ministry like owned nothing? He took possession of virtually nothing during his earthly ministry. 
But Jesus had something far greater to give. And he ensures that those who are dependent upon him are provided for in the best possible way. In a sermon entitled Farewell Gifts, we're going to consider three gifts that Jesus offers his disciples as he prepares them for his departure. Three farewell gifts that Jesus gives. First, we'll consider the gift of the Holy Spirit. A gift of remembrance and understanding. A gift of remembrance and understanding. The gift of the person of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we'll consider the gift of supernatural peace. The gift of comfort. The gift of comfort. The gift of supernatural peace. And third, we'll consider the gift of prophetic words. We might also call that the gift of hope. Jesus gives his disciples remembrance and understanding. He gives them comfort and he gives them hope. And he gives these things to them by the person of the Holy Spirit, the promise of supernatural peace, and statement of prophetic words. Let's first of all look at the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift that Jesus gives that provides remembrance and understanding. We see this in verses 25 and 26. Jesus said, these things I've spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Jesus says there will be a helper sent by the Father in Jesus' name. He says there's going to be a helper, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside of you. He'll be sent by my Father and he'll be sent in my name. Now this is in keeping with the previous explanation. Jesus had just gotten done saying to the disciples, I'm going to ask the Father that he give you a helper. You're not going to be left alone in this world. You'll be given the greatest assistance He said, I'll ask on behalf of you that the Father will send a helper to you. And now Jesus says, the Father indeed will send a helper in his name. Just as Jesus had come in the Father's name as the Father's emissary, so the Holy Spirit would come in Jesus' name as Jesus' emissary. As the Son had come to glorify the Father, the Spirit would come to glorify the Son. John 16, 13 and 14 says, But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he'll guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own initiative. What does it sound like? Remember, Jesus said this, right? I don't speak on my own initiative. I speak what my father tells me. Here he now says, the spirit coming does not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he'll speak. And he'll disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, Jesus says. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. This helper sent by the Father in Jesus' name, we're told, will give two things. First of all, remembrance for the forgetful. He'll provide remembrance for the forgetful, or maybe we could say for sometimes the dense. (laughs) Certainly when someone dies, it's a sad thing to think of forgetting them in any way, right? I know this is a particularly tragic thing for children when they lose parents that pass away. And they start to say things like, I can't really remember mom or dad. I'm having a hard time remembering them. With the passing of time, sometimes our memories fade. And that can be scary, thinking about not being able to remember what someone looked like. Thankful that we have pictures and things of that nature, but struggling with that or remembering what they said. Here Jesus gives a gift in the Holy Spirit who will remind his disciples of Jesus' words. They're about to go through a tremendously tumultuous experience under which... Many people would forget many things that had happened. Jesus says, I'm going to provide you with remembrance of what I've said. 
And it's going to come in the gift of the person of the Holy Spirit. This would be important not only for the disciples own living, but for the instruction and testimony that they would share with others, notably seen in the writing of Scripture. We're reading this morning the Gospel of John, the Gospel according to John. John is recounting his remembrances of what Jesus did and what Jesus said. How can we be sure that these are true remembrances? Jesus makes sure of it by giving the Holy Spirit. He says, the Holy Spirit will bring to your mind remembrances of what I have said. He will remind you of my words. But it's also true that the Holy Spirit still works today in reminding Jesus' disciples of Jesus' words. This is why not only scripture reading and study is important, but time spent memorizing and meditating upon scripture. Such work provides a fertile ground for the Holy Spirit to bring up new fruit as it is needed. Have you had an experience like that in your life? Where you're going through either a trial or a hardship, maybe in the midst of sickness, maybe in the midst of witnessing to someone else, and scripture references start coming to your mind. It's like the word of God just starts coming into your mind and you don't even really know where it came from. Well, it's the Holy Spirit who brings to our minds the remembrance of Scripture. It's why we encourage the memorization of Scripture from the earliest of ages. That's why we emphasize that at our church and we emphasize it here at our school. Our goal is to plant God's Word in our children's hearts. And when that's done diligently, the Holy Spirit then is provided with a rich field to pull fruit from and to make use of that at appropriate times. You see, the time to prepare for moments in which you'll need Scripture is now. Because as we plant God's Word in our heart, then the Holy Spirit can make use of that and recall it to our minds at the appropriate moments. I know there have been times where having a devotional one day, I would have never had a clue that just a couple days later, the Lord would use something from that quiet time to help me or assist me at a time of need. So certainly the immediate application of this is the disciples themselves, the apostles, would be granted a remembrance of what Jesus had said and done, such that we could even have the writing of Scripture that we could read ourselves. But certainly a further application of this truth is the Holy Spirit given to all believers throughout all ages. He continues to remind God's people of the words of Jesus. But he not only provides reminders for the forgetful, but he gives understanding for the clueless. He gives understanding for the clueless. Remember, the disciples had grown accustomed over these three years of walking and following Jesus, that wherever he went, they went. And whatever he said to do, they did. But John tells us repeatedly that the disciples failed to understand what Jesus taught. They seldom grasped the true meaning of what Jesus was actually saying. We see this happen repeatedly throughout the Gospels, but John does this in particular in a couple of places. And we had them read this morning. The two scripture readings that you heard, if you could tie together why these two readings, why a reading from the first cleansing of the temple when Jesus goes into the temple with this whip and he turns over the money changers tables and he kicks them all out of there. Why describe that situation and then the following events where they, Jesus, they say, what, by what authority do you, can you do this? Show us a sign. And Jesus says, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. They look at him and go, you're crazy. It took 46 years to build this temple and you're going to do it in three days? Well, nobody understood at that time what was going on. But John tells us there, if you're listening carefully as we were reading in John 2, verse 22, his disciples remembered that he said this when he 
rose from the dead. When Jesus rose from the dead, his disciples remembered that Jesus had said this about the fact that destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it back. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Another example that we had is in John 12. These are events surrounding the triumphal entry, much closer to the time of Jesus' crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. But again, after all the hosannas and the palm branches and all of that's going on, they still don't really get it all. And we're told in verse 16 of chapter 12, these things his disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things written of him, that these things were to be done to him. You see it? There's two examples in John's own gospel where John says, we didn't get it then, but after Jesus rose from the dead, We remembered it and we understood it. Who's doing this work? Jesus tells them. I'm giving you the gift of remembrance and understanding and it's coming to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. He's going to remind you of what I've done. He's going to remind you of what I said. And then he's going to grant you understanding of what I said. You're going to finally get it. There's going to be a light bulb moment. There's going to be a clicking where there before was just cluelessness. Principally important was that the disciples not only witnessed Jesus' works and Jesus' words, but they interpret them rightly, that they grasp the significance of what Jesus has done, that they're able to connect Old Testament prophecy with the fulfillment of what happened in Jesus' own life. Jesus says the Holy Spirit will teach you all that's needful, all that you need for spiritual growth and vitality and life as God's children. Were it not for this ministry of the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't have the scriptures to read together. We're told in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, ready for every good work. So the scripture is inspired by God. But what did that process of inspiration look like? The other way that can be translated is God breathed. Or God-spirited. God breathes. Inspired. The word there, theopneustos, means God-breathed or God-spirited. Pneuma being the word for spirit or breath. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It is spirited by God. Now, if we connect that with what we read in 2 Peter 1, we know, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. There's a definition of inspiration. What does it mean for something to be God-breathed? It means that men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Jesus here is describing how this works. The Holy Spirit will be granted to his disciples. They'll be granted remembrance of what Jesus did and said. And they'll be granted understanding. He would teach them so they can connect the dots and understand what this all meant. You understand that both are important, right? You have to have the facts in order for there to be anything to draw a conclusion from. But you can't just have isolated dots. They have to be drawn into conclusion. There would be something gained from that. The Holy Spirit would work to do both. Remind them of the facts and then connect the dots and help them understand. 
But as much as we are just as much in need of that work of the Holy Spirit today as the disciples were then, the Holy Spirit superintended the writing of Scripture such that everything in the Bible is true. Every dot and tittle, every single part of it is true and without error. But the Holy Spirit also works in believers' minds and hearts today in the work of what we call illumination. He works not only in the inspiration of the Word of God, but He works in the illumination of the Word of God. Giving us eyes to see. Granting us hearts to believe and receive. Reforming our desires. Softening our wills to obey. You see, a Christian has these resources that a non-Christian does not. Anyone can read the Bible. Anyone can mine it for facts and be a trivia expert on biblical items. But there's a difference between a Christian and a non in this sense, that the Christian connects the dots by the work of the Holy Spirit and believes and receives and loves Jesus and yearns for Christ. And he shows that love for Jesus in obedience and submission to his will, a delight and joy in obeying his commandments. You see, we receive not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who's from God, 1 Corinthians 2, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. The Holy Spirit grants this insight. He grants this understanding. He grants the understanding such that these words could be written, and He grants the understanding that such that those who read them can understand them and rightly receive them and believe them and respond to them. This occurs during simple devotional times, just reading scripture on our own. This happens in discussions with other Christians. The Holy Spirit works through the listening to sermons. The Holy Spirit works even through everyday experience of God's faithfulness and goodness and the provision of our daily needs. At times we're granted a greater appreciation for things that maybe we were familiar with for many, many years, but now all of a sudden there's new richness and value to the things that we've learned. Because he brings it to our remembrance as we learn other things and as these things all grow one with the other. So it's appropriate for us to pray that God bring remembrance of his word to our hearts and minds. It is appropriate for us to pray that every day of our lives. Lord, remind me of your word. Lord, remind me of your word and teach me your word this day. Asking him to make application of his word to our hearts, to our minds. When we're fearful, when we're anxious, when we're worried, when we're tempted, when we're in the midst of witnessing, when we're teaching dependency upon the person of the Holy Spirit who will bring to our mind the Word of God and help us understand it aright. Jesus gives the gift of remembrance and understanding in the person of the Holy Spirit. The second gift that Jesus gives is the gift of supernatural peace. He gives comfort. And He gives it in the most marvelous way. He gives a provision For the unsettled heart. Jesus says. I don't give you a peace. Like the world gives. Now. Peace to you. Was the typical Jewish greeting. 
We know it with the word shalom. It might be the only Hebrew word we know. Shalom. Peace to you. That, their, their greeting was that. That was hi. How are you doing? That was an Aggie land. Howdy. You know, peace to you. Shalom. That's how they greeted one another. They greeted one another when they saw each other that way, and they said goodbye to one another with that word. Peace to you and peace to you. This is a word that was typical. And in the Jewish mind, it meant more than just the cessation of conflict. It meant the richest blessings upon you, too. Not just no negatives, but also positives. Everything that comes with peace. It's a much more encompassing term than we think of today. We normally think of peace today as the cessation of conflict or war. And the world makes all kinds of offers of temporary freedoms from conflict and anxiety and strife. Peace gets a whole lot of lip service today, doesn't it? How many peace treaties are are made? How many attempts at peace? How much does the world talk about peace and simultaneously arm itself for war? Right? How often is peace talked about on the global stage? How much is it talked about on the personal stage? MacArthur says this. It's been estimated that in the last 5,500 years, more than 8,000 peace treaties have been broken and more than 14,000 wars have been fought with a combined total of 4 billion casualties. For a short time, a fleeting and conditional peace can be experienced in the world, but that peace that is given by the world is often begrudgingly, it's sparingly, it's unwillingly, and it's only for a temporary period of time. Many promise peace when there is no peace. The peace of false security. Just pretend there's no real problem. Just act like everything's fine. That kind of peace is condemned in Scripture. Those who say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. The world's world's failure, though, is due to its inability to give peace the peace that men need the most. Carson said it this way. There is sufficient hatred, selfishness, bitterness, malice, anxiety, and fear in every attempt at peace that it's rapidly swamped. He said, pretty much what he's saying is, there's so much sin that peace on worldly terms is impossible. Peace in this world is an illusion. And not only on the global stage, but on the personal stage. Again, MacArthur points out how often we use the word peace to refer to personal things. Like, we, we, we ask that we be just given just a minute of peace and quiet. Or we're told to make peace with our past. Or we hope that one day we'll rest in peace when we die. But all these forms of peace are unattainable apart from Jesus. A peace based on temporary circumstances or escapism is not real peace. One more quote from MacArthur. He said this, The reason people lack peace is not emotional, psychological, or circumstantial. The reason why people lack peace is theological. There's a theological issue here at at stake. The world tries to achieve peace without dealing with the fundamental reason for strife and conflict. They're trying to affect peace without dealing with the heart. And at the heart of this issue is the problem of sin. The Pax Romana, the Roman peace, was won by force, was won by the sword. So it is today that as nations speak of peace, they often get there through 
much show of force. Some in Jesus' day believed that's how the Messiah would bring peace. Even among Jesus' own disciples, there was misunderstanding regarding this. When are you going to set up your kingdom, Jesus? When are we going to grab a bunch of swords and conquer Rome? Conquer everyone that's against the nation of Israel. That's not how Jesus came to establish peace, because we needed a different peace, much more important peace. You see, the peace of God was achieved by the Messiah suffering and dying in the place of rebels. In the place of those who knew no peace. Jesus died for warmongers. He died for people who were at war with him. Jesus' farewell peace is different from the peace the world gives. It was not merely a formality. It was not merely, merely a greeting. Jesus offers a real and true blessing when he talks about peace. He left a legacy. He says, I leave to you peace. This is my legacy. I leave peace. Others leave other things. Jesus leaves peace. He leaves his disciples with a deeper, everlasting peace. A peace that would aid them in their own struggle here on earth. Because things could be settled in heaven. Things on earth are quite different when things are settled between you and Almighty God. Jesus offers a peace accompanying true and complete salvation. Peace that offers full forgiveness of sin and right standing with God. Peace that flows from being granted life. Eternal life. J.C. Ryle said, Peace is Christ's peculiar gift. Not money, not worldly ease, not temporal prosperity. Jesus didn't promise us mansions by lakes here on this earth. He didn't promise us no sickness. He didn't promise us riches and health on this earth. These are at best, Ryle says, very questionable possessions. They often do more harm than good to the soul. They act as clogs and weights to our spiritual life. Inward peace of conscience arising from a sense of pardon, sin, and reconciliation with God is a far greater blessing. This peace is the property of all believers, whether they're high or low, whether they're rich or poor. You see, Jesus leaves a legacy. You could also say Jesus gives a treasure. My peace I give to you. I leave you peace. My peace I give to you. The peace that Jesus gives is peculiarly His to give. It is His own to give. And only He can give it. Because He bought it by His own blood. When He purchased it by sacrificing Himself on the cross. All rebellion and conflict is ultimately founded on the fact that the human race is at war with God. That's where all conflict ultimately stems from. It's our rebellion. And that rebellion, God calls sin. We're sinners by heritage because we're all descendants of Adam and Eve. Romans 5.12, all of us were in Adam when he sinned. So when Adam fell, all of humanity fell. All of us are separated from God as a result. But before you get too upset with Adam, you also sin. (laughs) You also have chosen freely to do wrong things. 
Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because God is holy and just, he must punish sinners for their sin. He must punish sinners for their sin. However, God is also merciful and gracious. And so he has made a way for peace. But please recognize this. Peace comes on his terms and his terms alone. You don't get to set the terms for peace. He's the Almighty, He's the Creator, and you're the creature. You don't get to set terms for peace. You don't, you're not owed peace. You don't deserve peace. The wages of sin is death. We deserve death. We deserve eternal judgment. So we don't set the terms of peace. But God has made a way for peace, but it comes only on His terms. And the terms are these. He sent His Son, Jesus, to fully satisfy the demands of divine justice by dying in the place of all those who believe on Him. Jesus was treated as if He committed our sin so that we could be treated as though we lived His perfect, righteous life. Jesus was treated like I should have been so I can be treated as Jesus should have been. Do you see it? That's what happened at the cross. Jesus bore the weight of the sins of all those who would trust in Him. And He shed His blood and died. And provided as a substitute for sinners. Provided a sacrifice that was well-pleasing to God. All those lambs and goats of the Old Testament could never really take away our sin. All of it was a foreshadowing of the coming perfect, spotless Lamb of God would come to take away the sin of the world. This is the only means by which God can be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith. He's just because he still punishes sin, but he punishes it in the person of his son for those who believe in him. Now, should you refuse those terms, then God will judge you for your own sin. And as the Bible says very plainly, you will see the wrath of God fall upon you and you'll spend all of eternity in hell. But the good news is, as long as you're alive and you can hear these words, the message of the gospel is open to you. People who get upset about hell have not considered the fact that they are deserving of it. And God has made a way by which you can have heaven instead. He sent his son that you could be saved. And that peace, you see. Romans 5.1, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Having been granted peace with God, that becomes the foundation for all other peace. See, as a believer then, we have peace, and that peace serves as the foundation for our harmony and unity as the body of Christ. Colossians 3 calls those who are chosen of God, holy and beloved, to put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whomever has a plane against another one. Just as the Lord forgave you, so you should also do. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Listen, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. You see, all that stuff that Christians are called to show towards one another, forgiving one another, loving one another, it all stems from the fact that we've been put on right terms with God. We were at war with Him, but now by God's action, we've been put at peace with Him. We've been reconciled to God through His Son, Jesus. And if we're thankfully... In that place, 
How can we not show forgiveness and kindness and love towards one another? It also becomes the basis for our own personal peace. Because in Philippians 4, as Pastor Christian read this morning during our worship time, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension. Stop it for just a minute. The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension. Who would have ever dreamed that the peace of God would come through the death of God's own Son? And that that death of Jesus would mean that I could be forgiven of the worst sins ever sinned. No matter how black and heinous they are, that I could be granted garments, that I could be washed white and clean. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He makes provision. And then he also appends to that a prescription. He gives a prescription for the troubled heart. He calls us to take action with our hearts. Again, he repeats this phrase that he used earlier here in chapter 14. Remember chapter 14, verse 1? Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Again, here in verses 27, 28, he returns to this idea. Do not let your heart be troubled. Do not give in to fear. Much of the trouble that our hearts as Christians experience is failure to appreciate the gospel aright. A Christian has no real reason to fear. Why? Because God has forgiven our past, and He's provided for our present, and He's guaranteed our future. He's forgiven our past, He's provided for our present, and He's guaranteed our future. We have no real reason to fear. No real reason to be anxious. Yet the disciples were worried about what was going to happen with Jesus. Jesus, remember, is saying in this whole context, I'm about to leave you. And they're fretting about this. But Jesus says to them, if you loved me, you would rejoice because I'm going to the Father. If the disciples understood what was about to happen to Jesus, they would have been glad rather than sad, Jesus says. If they could take their eyes off of themselves and consider that Jesus was returning to his father, they would have rejoiced that Jesus is returning to that glory which he had before he came down to earth in the incarnation. He's about to leave this state of humiliation and be exalted and given the name above every name. He was about to be glorified and enjoy that glory which he had with the father from all eternity. Jesus says, why are you sad? If you understood what was about to happen, I'm going to the Father. I'm going to glory. He had left that perfect fellowship with the Father to come to earth and take on flesh in the incarnation. He willingly subjected himself to the mock and scorn and ridicule of rebellious sinners. He submitted himself even to death on a cross. And now he was returning to the fullness of glory, which was his from eternity past. He says, If you understood what was about to happen, you shouldn't be sad. Edersheim says it this way, if discarding thoughts of themselves, they had only given room to feelings of true love to him, instead of mourning, they would have rejoiced because he went to the Father. With all that this implied, not only of his rest and triumph in him, but of the perfecting of his word, since the condition 
of that mission of the Holy Spirit being sent was him going to the Father. They should have rejoiced. This meant better things to come. Death is a particularly sad thing for us to encounter because we all realize that it was not part of God's original creation, right? Death is a consequence of sin. God had warned Adam and Eve that should they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in that day they will surely die. Death is a reminder that this world is not our final place. So it's sad whenever we lose a loved one. And certainly, particularly tragic when we think of those who don't know Jesus and we consider the eternal damnation to follow. But for those who know Christ, who have passed away from this life, they've just been promoted. They've been brought into the presence of Jesus. And I think far too often in moments like that in contemplating the lives of Christians, should we engage in a prolonged period of sadness, it's because we've thought too much of ourselves and not enough about them. For how on earth would we want them back? They've gone to a much better place. There's no way we should want them back, except for selfish reasons, for us. But should we think about where they're going to a place far better than our imagination? Then what a great solace comes to those when we think of Christians dying, considering a loved one now departed, that they're now experiencing a joy unthinkable. Can you imagine a place where you're never disappointed? Can you imagine a place where your expectations are never thwarted, where everything is always above and beyond your expectations? You know, disappointment happens because things aren't as good as we thought they were going to be. Right? That's where it happens. We think it's going to go this way, and it doesn't, and we're disappointed. And so we try to work with our expectations and try to bring them down. You know, Maybe you've done that with movies before. Like It was a horrible movie because you had expectations this high, and it was not that, and so it was horrible. So then you go in with artificially low expectations to feel better about the movie or the book or whatever it is that you happen to be engaging in. Heaven is a place where there will never be uh, that kind of situation. There will not be disappointment. It will go far above and beyond our expectations. There will be no regrets. The new heavens and new earth will be so glorious and so splendid. Jesus is saying to his disciples, if you knew where I was going, you wouldn't be sad. If you loved me, you'd be excited about what's going to happen. This is why Paul can say in Philippians 1, I'm hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, which is very much better. Yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. You see what he's saying? He said, while I'm here in the flesh, I have a mission and a ministry to do amongst you. But should I die, that's very much better than here. Jesus then says to this, I'm going to the Father and the Father is greater than I. This has caused some amount of um, heresy over the years. People have said things like, well, then God the Father must be a greater God than God the Son. These kinds of conceptions. Those are all false understandings of what's being said here. You have to understand that the meaning of greatness is determined by context. In what way is Jesus saying that the Father is greater than him in this context? Let me give an example. President Obama is greater than I in a number of ways. He has more political power. He has more wealth. 
He has more renown. He has more popular influence, etc. We could add more things to that list. But he's not a greater human being than I. We're both human beings. It doesn't change that fact. We're both human beings. We're both just two men. He has some greater things by way of being elected our country's president. While the father and son are one and therefore ontologically equal, they are equal persons of the Godhead, which Jesus has made abundantly clear throughout this gospel. Jesus has also been very consistent in declaring that he as the son is the one sent by the father and he does all that his father commands him to do. He functions in a subordinate way to the father's will. So while they are equal, they have different roles within the Godhead. Now, why spend some time with this? Well, one, because there's been a lot of tragic misinterpretation of that phrase. But the second thing is I think there's a really wonderful side note as it relates to our culture's dilemma with genders today. The whole relationship between male and female. And I think that the Trinity is a great place by way of comparison to consider what did God do when he made male and female? We know that he made male and female in his own image. Genesis 1, 27. And we know, as Galatians 3 tells us, that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither male nor female, there is neither slave nor free. We're all loved, we're all valued, we're all treasured by Jesus, and all the walls of division and all the impediments to access with God have been removed by Jesus. Male or female, equal access to the Father through Jesus Christ. Yet... God has created men to exercise loving leadership. See Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 31. And God created women to demonstrate loving submission. See Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 24. And here's the point of comparison. Just as the father and son are equal in essence, both being persons, both being really and truly and completely God, so men and women are equal in essence. Truly human, truly made in God's image, and if saved, both truly in Christ, with equal access to the Father. Yet, as the Father and Son have different roles within the Godhead, so God has given men and women different roles in the home and in the church and in society in general. Jesus then says this, I've already told you, I'm coming back. I'm going away and I will come back to you. He's reminding them, I'm not leaving you utterly alone. I'm giving you the person of the Holy Spirit and I'm not leaving you forever for I'm going to return. So Jesus gifts them with remembrance and understanding the person of the Holy Spirit. He grants them comfort in talking about the supernatural peace that they can have with God, which transforms every other relationship. And the third gift that he gives here is the gift of prophetic words, which we could also describe as the gift of hope. He says that events are transpiring just as they have been foretold. It's my time to come, my time to leave is soon. I don't have many words, many more words to give to you. The ruler of the world is coming, he says. Jesus knows what's about to happen and he tells his disciples beforehand. Quick description here of prophecy. There are two major types of prophecy in the Bible. And the majority of prophecy in the Bible is what we could call forthtelling. Forthtelling. What do we mean by that? 
We mean that a lot of prophecy in the Bible is descriptive of events that have already happened. And the prophet is giving God's description or perspective on those events. The prophet says this happened for these reasons. And this is you as God's people need to respond in these ways. There's a whole lot of that sort of prophecy in the Bible. God's perspective given to events that have already transpired. But there's some prophecy in the Bible that is foretelling. Speaking of events that are yet to happen, they haven't happened yet. And there's an element of retrospect in responding to prophecy like that, because you only really know if it's true after the event happens, right? I mean, you don't really know until the event actually happens. Why is that kind of prophecy given? Well, it authenticates the speaker. Because if he spoke about something that would happen, and it does, it authenticates him as a prophet. God can tell the future because he knows it, because he planned it, because he wrote it. So if a prophet speaks about something in the future and it comes to pass, then he's truly spoken from God. But if it doesn't come to pass, he's a false prophet in the Old Testament. They're to be killed, stoned. Because they claimed to be speaking from God when they weren't. Now, certainly when you see that happen, then it builds confidence and assurance and faith in those who are listening or following that individual. So Jesus tells the disciples of this imminent, these imminent events that are about to happen. So that way afterward, when they reconcile, when they recognize its fulfillment, they'll have greater understanding and appreciation for who Jesus is. The verification of Jesus' words would lead them into greater and greater hope and assurance and faith. Jesus reminds his disciples here that our great hope is founded in God's sovereignty. Why make a big deal about a great God? Because a great God gives great hope. A small and puny God gives no hope. Because what he says might not happen. What he says can't be trusted. Let's say that he says and he has intentions, but he just doesn't have enough power to make it happen. There's no hope. There's no assurance in that. But the one and only true God, when he speaks, it is true. And when he says something's going to happen, it will happen. He's bringing to pass all the counsels of his holy will. And for this, I can't help but quote Spurgeon. This was famous sermon introduction of Spurgeon. I've actually read it before. This is what he says. There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. On the other hand, there is no doctrine more hated by worldlings, no truth of which they made such a football as to great, as to great stupendous, but yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. They will allow him to be in his workshop, to fashion worlds and to make stars. They'll allow him to be in his armory, to dispense his alms and uh, almonry, sorry, dispense alms and bestow his bounties. They'll allow him to sustain the earth and to bear up the pillars thereof or to light the lamps of heaven or to rule the waves of the ever moving ocean. But when God ascends his throne, his creatures then gnash their teeth. And we proclaim an enthroned God and his right to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well, without consulting them in the matter. Then it is that we are hissed and 
and hated. And then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us. For God on his throne is not the God that they love. But it is the God upon the throne that we love to preach. It is God upon his throne whom we trust. You see, there is encouragement to us. Because God on his throne means God is in control. Jesus says, the prince of this world is coming. And he has nothing on me. Now, he says, in me. It's an idiom in in uh, Jewish conversation to describe something like, he has no claim on me. He has nothing over me. Jesus is saying, the prince of the world is coming, but he has nothing on me. There's going to be a last and most violent attack made on Jesus. But ultimately, Satan would have nothing on him. There is no point of weakness in Jesus that Satan could lay hold of. He had tried, remember, in the wilderness temptations, all to no avail. Where Israel had fallen, Jesus was successful. Where all of us have fallen, Jesus was successful. Satan, when he comes to other men, he knows weaknesses and he takes advantage of those. He has things on them because they sin. But in Jesus, all that Satan would find was the pure, spotless Righteousness of the Lamb of God. Jesus was the one who obeyed the Father in every detail. He was perfectly good. He was blameless. So Satan had nothing on him. The ruler of this world, as he's described often in the Bible, is a usurper. Satan. He's a fraud. And he's advancing his own agenda. And what's so incredible about God's sovereignty is that he allows the usurper to advance his own agenda and his own agenda comes down on his own head. Satan meets with his own downfall in accomplishing his devious schemes and plans. Yes, Jesus will die, but he won't stay dead. He'll rise again from the grave. Far from falling victim to Satan, the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3, 8, 3, 8. And through his death, he, and through his death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil, Hebrews 2, 14. Satan's rule is overruled by God, the true king of all. And so the son can confidently submit himself to his father's plan, knowing that everything is progressing in perfect fulfillment of what his father desired to happen. Now, Satan had nothing on Jesus, but Satan has much on us. That is, if we're not in Christ. If we're not in Christ, Satan has much on us. He can point to all sorts of sins. All sorts of things our adversary can bring up against us. But if we're in Christ, if we're hidden in Him, this is the beautiful reality of the Gospel, that Christ died and suffered for us, such that we can be granted justification, that even though we're unworthy of this sort of forgiveness and life, we can be clothed with the perfect righteousness of Jesus such that no charge that the enemy makes against us will stand. Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are in Christ Jesus, no condemnation, no accusation can be leveled against us and stand because we're in Jesus and Satan has nothing on him. Our adversary, the devil, is powerless against our advocate, Jesus. Jesus would even prophesy coming persecution for his own disciples later on here in John 16. And he says, when that hour comes, you'll remember that I told you that this would happen. That is all part of the plan. Philippians 1.29, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in his name, but also to 
suffer for his sake. So suffering is not only part of Jesus's life, but everyone who follows Jesus will encounter suffering. You can be sure of this. You'll have trouble in this life. Living a Christian life means a life of trouble. Because not only do we live in a fallen world, but we live in a fallen world that hates Jesus. So we'll hate anyone that follows Jesus. To take heart, because in Christ, you have an anchor of the soul. You have ultimate security and you have hope that goes beyond the grave. All those who share in Christ's sufferings also partake in his resurrection. And since we're just pilgrims here and we have an eternal perspective, the troubles that we ultimately encounter are nothing. They're light in comparison with the glory, the weight of glory that is to follow. Jesus is ready for the moment. All those who trust in God's sovereignty are ready for whatever moment should come. He says to his disciples at the end of this text, arise, let's go from here. It's time to get going, he says. And the rest of this farewell discourse, I believe, is delivered while they're en route to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus will pray and the disciples will sleep and he'll be betrayed and arrested and all of that. I believe the rest of this is kind of a travel while he's traveling. It even seems to make sense. We'll see next time together in John 15, when he talks about vines and stuff, it seems maybe even fitting that maybe they're walking by vines and he notices them and uses them as an object illustration. There's been a lot of debate about this, this little travel narrative moment at the end of chapter 14, because if you read in chapter 18, verse one, it talks about how now he came to the Garden of Gethsemane. But again, I think it can all be explained as this is when he's getting up to leave and then on they go as they speak. And then he gets to the Garden of Gethsemane and there's a narrative about that. I'll just say this, though, if for some reason Jesus says, let's get up and go from here. And the next couple of chapters, he's still in the upper room with the disciples before they leave. That wouldn't be too much unlike us, would it? How many times have you said goodbye to people before and you've said like goodbye to them eight times because you kept talking to them on the way out to the car, even leaving from the church maybe here, right? So we can even understand that. Hey, guys, it's time to get up and let's get going. And then, oh, yeah, I have some more things to talk to you about. And then the conversation continues. And then finally, eventually, we get out the door, whatever the case may be. Jesus is not scared about the coming battle. He says, it's time to get up, it's time to arise, and let's move forward toward this. He's not shirking away from the moment. He says, it's time to leave. It's time to arise. It's time to meet the enemy head on. It's like as if the battle scene is there, and he's ready to push forward towards it. He's not being taken unawares. Jesus knows exactly what's about to happen. Jesus said in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. No one took Jesus's life from him. He gave his life. Everyone else owes their life because of sin. Jesus was sinless. No one could take his life from him. He willingly laid down his life. And Jesus says, this furnishes proof to the whole world that I love my father. He's got done saying those who love me, obey my commandments. Jesus now says, I obey my father. And this furnishes absolute undeniable proof that I love him. I will follow his plan no matter what it brings. The farewell gifts that Jesus gave his disciples some 2000 years ago, he still gives disciples today. Jesus gives us exactly what we need. He gives us a gift of remembrance and understanding in the person of the Holy Spirit. He gives us a gift of comfort in the idea and the knowledge and the reality of being granted supernatural peace with God. 
And third, he gives us the gift of hope in prophetic words that will come to pass. Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Let's give thanks to God for his marvelous gifts and use those gifts to further and advance his kingdom. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your marvelous, wonderful word. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for having brought these truths to the remembrance of the apostles and for granting them understanding, taking spiritual truths, spiritual thoughts, and combining them with spiritual words to be written down for us many years later to be able to read. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for informing our minds and transforming our hearts. Thank you for this supernatural peace. Thank you for the comfort and hope that comes from knowing that, God, you are bringing to pass all your perfect purposes. And in this room, even this morning, there may be some who would admit by your conviction that they don't know you, that they've lived lives for themselves rather than for you, that if they were to die right now, that they would be unsure of what would await them in eternity. Thank you, Lord, that you give, you've given this moment, this opportunity for such an individual to call out to you. I pray that they would. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would grant them eyes to see the beauty of Jesus, that you would grant them a heart to understand their own sinfulness and their need for a Savior. You grant them repentance and faith this day and save them. We thank you that you can do that miracle. Lord, may you be honored by the way in which we live as your children. Thank you for the gifts that you have given. May we use them with great effectiveness for your glory and kingdom's sake. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.